Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 464, September 13th, 2015. This week, online instruction is a growing business, and TrainSimple is in the process of expanding from being an Adobe-only shop to one that provides numerous classes for creative folks. If you're looking for an application that removes programs you no longer want, maybe the IOBit uninstaller is just what you need, or maybe not. In Short Circuits, a government agency close to home in Miami County, Ohio, had to pay cyber crooks to recover data. The 64-bit version of the BAT passes inspection, and the Secret Service says mobile payment fraud is on the rise. In spare parts, only on the website, things are changing so fast that it's becoming a problem. And cloud-based storage is a business that's growing fast. If you're looking for online training, particularly on Adobe products, you might have encountered TrainSimple. Although the online training has been available for only a few years, the company has deep roots that include in-person training in Los Angeles. In fact, founder Matt Peasy says that initially he was a certified trainer for Macromedia, the company that Adobe acquired in 2005 and thereby obtained applications such as Cold Fusion, Dreamweaver, Contribute, Flash, and Shockwave. I found TrainSimple to be a good resource for Adobe Dreamweaver, InDesign, and Photoshop, but the company has begun to branch out into related areas, and when I talked with PZ, I asked about the company's background. The website in its current state has been up effectively for about two and a half years, but we've been training uh, Adobe products since... 2001. We started off as a macromedia authorized training center in the Los Angeles area and obviously then got rolled into the Adobe program and expanded our offerings into some more of the Adobe products. But uh, th yeah, that's how we got started. We, we did um, hands-on training. We went to a lot of different companies teaching them different technologies. Flash was really big. I know that that's kind of... <laughs> you know, a word you're not supposed to say now um, when it comes to the web. But uh, we were, you know, pretty prevalent in that space and have transitioned over now into really all of Adobe's products and, you know, offering these self-paced video courses. Adobe is, I think, your, your primary focus, but are there other types of training that you provide? Sure. I mean, we do, we do some web technologies as well. So right now, if you're like a front-end designer, we kind of have you covered with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. We're also branching out into other creative disciplines, so things like photography, um, even more traditional topics like drawing, uh, graphic design, typography. So we have a lot kind of on the horizon in that sense. Uh, you know, things that would complement someone that's using Adobe products. Further out from there, we probably will get into some of the heftier web languages like Ruby, PHP, things along those lines, and may even uh, get into app development 
uh, like iOS, Swift, Android development, Java, things like that. The change that Adobe has made over the past couple of years, moving to uh, Creative Cloud and going to a pretty aggressive release schedule, of course, with the Agile-type development, they can release something new pretty much every day. Some products are easier to handle than others. Uh, you know, to give you some idea, Dreamweaver had to be completely re-recorded for the CC 2015 release because they just changed so much of it. Dreamweaver CC, you know, a, a fundamentals course on that no longer worked the right way. Uh, so, you know, we, we run into those issues. You know, and honestly, something like that's not really unlike the Creative Suite releases. Like if it was CS5 to CS6, we usually would do a, a full re-record anyway for something like that. But with Creative Cloud... I, in some ways, it's nicer because we can just record one or two videos that plug in to our existing course, and it works just fine. But in other cases, yeah, it's a total re-record, and then there's some confusion around that. If people haven't updated their software, they're looking at something totally different, and it's still named CC, and yeah, there's that year after it, but sometimes that just doesn't click with users, and, and sometimes that's problematic. I would think just from a user from an observer side that one of the primary problems you'd run into for on-screen training is the screen itself. Resolution for online training sessions is still considerably lower than, than what is optimal for most of the applications. How do you handle that? Some of the products, uh, we, we still can get away with a traditional like 1280 by 720 resolution. There are a few where that gets kind of squished. And so it's really just a matter of kind of playing around with the resolutions so we get can get them to be small enough for file size purposes, but large enough to accommodate enough of the interface. On occasion, yeah, we do run into problems where if we are recording at 1280 by 720, a dialog box doesn't fit on the screen. So... Fortunately, we, we have editors here that kind of make things work in those situations. And, you know, the other thing that we, we have been doing, especially with mobile devices and things like Apple TV, we do record oftentimes at a slightly higher resolution and, and squish it down in our player. But if anyone ever wants to go into like full screen mode, then they, they actually do get the higher resolution video. What are some of the other problems you uh, encounter when you're creating uh, content that needs to be delivered over the internet. I'm thinking kind of along the lines of uh, the user's internet speed, things like that that you, you have to take into consideration. Videos come a long way. Like I said uh, earlier, we started doing hands-on training, but we've always kind of dabbled in video right from the beginning. So, you know, back in like 2002, 2003, we did have a couple like video-based courses. It just wasn't our primary focus. And that was, that was really a challenge. I don't know if the web was really ready for video at that point, but there's things in place now that make delivering video a lot easier. We have a content distribution network, so they kind of handle all of our video encoding and delivery across the world. So the majority of people get a seamless experience, and depending upon where you are in the world, you'll be getting the data from a server that's closer to you, so it makes that experience consistent and reliable. So in terms of delivering the video over the web, I mean, it's a challenge because it's data intensive, but I think right now we're in a much better place to be able to do that. And it's it's less confusing, especially if you have 
something like a content distribution network. What would you say are the, the biggest differences between uh, the old days when you did in-person training exclusively and, and now when you're, you've got most of your training online? Video-based training is a lot more difficult from a, a training company's perspective. And the reason for that is you could put together a course that's three days, five days, seven days. Once you put that together, you're kind of good. You're good to go until there's a major change or you have to do something differently. And you're almost on autopilot after you've been teaching it a few times. You're in a live setting. You know the questions that the student or uh, students are going to ask. So it's it's almost a lot easier to do it in a live setting. Whereas with video-based training, you kind of have to think about what the students would ask without ever having the experience of the students asking it. You want to make sure that you cover the material in a way that hopefully doesn't really create questions. And you have to spend all the time preparing that video course so you're as good delivering it the moment you record it as you would have been if you've taught it, you know, 12 times in a live setting. So for us to create the videos, it's far more time consuming. It's more difficult. I mean, you can reach a much larger audience, which is a good thing. But, you know, at the same time, you know, hands-on training is far more expensive. So it it kind of balances out. But video training is definitely, it takes more time and effort. And when you're online, you certainly don't get any feedback from uh, the students. You don't see anybody sitting out there with a puzzled look or, or the expression of, wow, I really got it this time. Exactly. Exactly. So where, what, uh, what's on the agenda uh, for the future for Train Simple? Yeah. So l- like I said, uh, we're going to be expanding our, our offerings into some of the more traditional, I guess, like art topics that would be relevant to Adobe users, typography, color theory, drawing, things along those lines, and probably expanding a little bit more onto the technical side as well with more programming courses. And I, I can't, I, I won't give you a date, but in the next week or coming weeks, uh, we're actually releasing an update to our website uh, that's responsive, which is definitely good and long overdue. We have mobile apps, but I think the responsive site will certainly make that uh, a lot easier for a lot of users. But we're also going to be adding a little bit more interactivity where after you watch a couple videos on a particular topic, we'll have like an interactive challenge And one example that I can give you is, let's say, for example, we showed you how you can sharpen an image in Photoshop. And there's tons of ways that you can do that. And let's say the way that we decided to show you was using something like the unsharp mask filter. Well, after watching that video, you know, a lot of times what students will do is follow along on their own computers. But if they don't have the opportunity to do that, we're going to give them the chance to kind of do that in the browser. I mean, they're not going to be using Photoshop. We'll be simulating it to some extent but it at least gives them a chance to to test out what they just learned about. Matt Pesey's final point is particularly enticing in that some of the upcoming programs will present an application-like interface to give students a chance to experiment with techniques that have been described to them. This would be in addition to the exercise files that are provided with most of the programs so that users can follow along with the exact files that the trainer is using. TrainSimple might not be the largest training provider in the world, but if you're looking for useful information on Adobe products and other creative applications that are associated with the Adobe applications, TrainSimple would be a really good choice. You can learn more by visiting the TrainSimple website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com.
Selling programs is easy, but sometimes it's much more difficult to get rid of the programs. Several uninstaller applications exist, and this week I thought we'd take a look at the IOBit uninstaller. Most applications do come with their own uninstallers, and Windows has an uninstaller option. My recommendation always is to try these standard application removal tools first before reaching for a utility. As a rule, software developers don't want to make it difficult for people who want to remove their applications to do so. That would only serve to increase the number of negative reviews that a program receives. So first, try the uninstaller that came with the application. Then reboot the computer so that Windows can perform any additional cleanup. And then, if there are still remnants of a program that you can't eliminate any other way, bring out something like the IOBit uninstaller. But beware, installing the IOBit uninstaller will bring with it the entire IOBit Advanced System Care Pro Suite, unless you explicitly deselect it. I have always considered that kind of installation to be just a bit disingenuous, if not to say unethical. Unless the user carefully reads everything on the screen and deselects a very small item at the bottom of the screen, more applications than desired will be installed. IOBit offers great sale prices, though. 24 bucks for the ASC Pro on three computers. The sale is good right now, of course, but right now seems to be whenever you download the installer. In other words, it is a limited-time offer without a time limit. The IOBit uninstaller's interface is prettier than the Windows uninstaller, even the Windows 10 uninstaller, but it doesn't seem to offer any features that are substantially different from what Windows itself offers. In fact, the new Windows 10 Add and Remove interface can help you find a program by its name, its size, or its installation date. And there's also an option to look for applications that might have been installed in locations outside the standard locations. The IOBit uninstaller does allow for batch uninstalls. You can select two or more applications that you want to remove, and the application will install all of them simultaneously. That's neat, but how many times have you wanted to uninstall multiple applications at the same time? And removing multiple applications at the same time will increase the chances that you'll need to restart the computer to complete the operation. And I also suspect that it increases the opportunity for a problem to occur. The bottom line for the IOBit uninstaller is three cats. It's free, but it doesn't seem to do much more than Windows does. And a three cat rating really isn't bad. It's a good, solid rating. First, do no harm is part of the Hippocratic Oath for Doctors. It seems to apply to the IOBit installer, hence the three cat rating, but it also seems to do no particular good. If you like the interface, go ahead and download it and install it, but don't expect much more than you'd get from the Windows Add and Remove function in the control panel. Additional details are on the IOBit website, and you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website.
short circuits, Miami County, Ohio, isn't the first governmental agency to pay criminals so that they could regain access to their files. They probably won't be the last. Despite recommendations from Ohio's Attorney General not to pay the ransom, Miami County did. What option did it have, after all? I've described on previous programs the criminals who plant malware on computers, encrypt all of your files, and then offer to provide the key needed to unencrypt the file only when a ransom has been paid, usually via Bitcoin, which is untraceable. According to WHIO Television in Dayton, and thanks to Keith for the tip, Miami County's IT department dealt with an exposure of a few county offices to a ransomware threat sent via email. According to IT Director Matthew Watkins, and this reported by WHIO, the county ended up paying $700 ransom through a security expert hired to assist in dealing with the situation after the experts said successful recovery of affected documents would be quicker and less costly if that route was taken. The good news is that the criminals who plant this kind of malware do seem to be honest. That is, once they've received the ransom payment, they do provide the key needed to decrypt the affected files. According to the report on WHIO, among offices exposed was the County Communications Center, where the administrative network was affected, but not the secure 911 network. And the report says no files were lost, no information was stolen. Last week, I described version 7 of the BAT and said I hadn't tried the 64-bit version because I wasn't certain it'd make any difference. In addition, the anti-spam plugin that I use, called Anti-Spam Sniper, wasn't yet available in a 64-bit version. But about the same time I finished writing that sentence, Anti-Spam Sniper became available in a 64-bit version. Okay, so let's take a look at the BAT as a 64-bit application. Leaving the 32-bit application of the BAT installed, I installed the 64-bit version. 32-bit software installs in Program Files x86, and 64-bit software installs in Program Files. I started the new version of the program expecting that I would have to register it again and set up all of the accounts once again. Instead, it located my existing email files, and there was nothing at all for me to do except use it. Oh, and of course I had to install Anti-Spam Sniper. That turned out to be slightly more difficult, but just slightly. After running the plugins installer, I opened the bat and selected the plugin item on the Preferences menu. There was no entry for Anti-Spam Sniper, and its location wasn't immediately obvious. I knew which file to look for, but not where to find it. As it turned out, the installer placed the plugin inside the Program Files x86 directory. Now, it's not uncommon for 32-bit applications to add support for 64-bit systems, but because they're still 32-bit applications, they install in the x86 directory. The anti-spam sniper instructions did not make that clear. 
I found antispamsniper.tbp in the program files x86 antispam sniper for the bat directory, added it to the antispam plugins, and found that it too had found both its settings and its historical data. Everything should be that easy. But does converting an email program to a 64-bit version offer any real benefits? I'm not sure. The program feels a bit faster and maybe a bit smoother. Otherwise, though, the operation is exactly the same as it was, and that's as it should be. So consider this another vote in favor of the bat, whether you choose the 32-bit version or the 64-bit version. credit for being inventive. No matter what you have, they'll try to find a way to get it. Some of them are very good, good enough that they might be able to make a living honestly, if they wanted to. Apparently they don't want to. The U.S. Secret Service says that vulnerabilities in account provisioning and verification processes in near-field communication-based mobile payments is being exploited. The payment provisioning aspect of the NFC payment system process has proven particularly vulnerable as it contains a variety of weak security controls. That's according to the Secret Service. For example, if fraud concerns arise during the transaction process, a determination to proceed with the transaction is often based on the user calling from a recognized number in their profile or answering a series of standard security questions. Additionally, the Secret Service says that compromised card verification value codes, when coupled with hijacked account information derived from certain popular music and media download sites, put consumers at risk for fraud. Hacked customer data from popular music sites can be purchased for as little as $8 an account in criminal underground forums and then used to facilitate a variety of illicit transactions in the mobile payment space. CVV codes, by the way, are those three-digit numbers on the backs of most credit cards or the four-digit numbers on the fronts of American Express cards. The ease of identity theft has led to an increase in falsification of payment credentials. While measures to prevent identity theft are important to mitigating falsification of payment credentials, issuers such as banks and credit unions must assume that stolen identities will continue to exist. The Secret Service says to prevent falsification of payment credentials, issuers need to control the registration process and the issuance of payment credentials by strengthening the verification process. Additional information is on the Secret Service website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And you don't need a link for spare parts, which is only on the website. This week, things are changing so fast that it's becoming a problem. And cloud-based storage is a business that is growing fast. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. 
the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.